let's go to Luke chapter 11, uh, which is uh, where we were last time. And again, this uh, hope the starkness of the message behind me. Uh, that is what Jesus is, is doing here. And uh, again, we, <clears throat> we come to passages like this with 2,000 years of developed theology and creeds and confessions and all of those kinds of things. Uh, imagine what these 12 men are going through who are walking with Jesus. Uh, what these people are hearing after 400 years of silence. Uh, the last prophet, Malachi, was <clears throat> 400 years before the events we're reading about. Uh, no prophetic word. And then here is this man who is walking uh, through <clears throat> through Palestine, through Israel, with this message of it's either me or it's Satan. That is, uh, I, I can't imagine any, any starker presentation. It is as true of each of us today as it was of each of them. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, just uh, understand... Uh, what is being presented to these, to these people, all of them, whether the, the disciples or others who are hearing Jesus. And again, we are in the section of Luke, the, the largest um, subgroup, if you will, of, of Luke's teaching, which is really not uh, pointed to any specific location or, or chronology. It is a gathering of, uh, of cohesive thoughts as Luke moves through his gospel, taking Jesus from the north in Galilee down to uh, Jerusalem in the south. And if you remember last week, <clears throat> we ended on the 23rd verse of uh, this chapter of Luke after, uh, after Jesus has, has presented a couple of, of uh, very stark presentations. And the 23rd verse encapsulates everything he's been saying, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Um, that is, um, we've, you've heard the phrase already, not yet. That's uh, Theologians have, I think it's a wise and very useful concept to keep in mind. We are, as Christians, we are already saved and nothing can change that. We cannot fall from the Lord's hand, but we are not yet across the finish line. We are battling with this thing called sin, and um, that needs to be kept in mind. That perspective is going to be uh, drawn out a little bit further today as we go beyond verse, verse 23. We're going to try to get through verse 36 today of Luke chapter 11. And there are a number of little vignettes in here. The first one is verses 24, 25, and 26, which is uh, Jesus' teaching. After he said, if you're not with me, you're against me, he says this, verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Uh, this is a very uh, 
interesting, uh, and again, stark, everything that's, that's coming at us here is stark, but frankly, the gospel is stark. You can't dabble in it. You can't be divided by it. You can't have one foot in the Jesus camp and one foot in the Satan camp in terms of your belief structure. All of this is predicated on faith. But in these three verses, what Jesus is saying is uh, that a person uh, who knows the power of sin and the power of Satan uh, and is, is trying to deal with it, an unclean spirit, think of some sort of sinful impulse, some kind of sinful proclivity that, that you and I uh, have uh, several of, uh, leaves, it departs. And the person tries then to self-improve. He, he sweeps, uh, what does it say? Um, finds the house swept and put in order. Uh, so once I have tried desperately to fight against a certain sin pattern, and I think I'm in a, a period of time when I'm being fairly successful, uh, everything is put in order, the house is swept. The unclean spirit hasn't gone anywhere, at least nowhere that it will not uh, return. And one thing that is in, very, very important to, to understand from this couple of verses here is that sin never remains on an even playing field. Uh, when the unclean spirit comes back, the passage in verse 26 ends by saying the last state of that person is worse than the first. <clears throat> and what's, what that is, is saying is something very, very important. And that is, uh, as we try to approach sinfulness in our own power, we can have various degrees of success, but ultimately it is not going to work. We're going to be left worse off than we were to begin with. We should be fighting. We are, we are enjoined by Scripture uh, to, to work on our sanctification. Uh, but understand that ultimately we're not as strong as Satan is. We're not as strong as our sin is. And we're not going to be able to, uh, to conquer it in our own power. Here's a statement that uh, Phil Riken makes. Very, very uh, insightful and helpful. Quote, moral reformation without spiritual regeneration leads to demonic domination. Let me read that again. Moral reformation, trying to, uh, to appropriately, biblically, trying to deal with, with our sinfulness. Moral reformation, trying to reform myself morally. But doing that without spiritual regeneration, if I am not a believer... And if I'm not calling upon the Holy Spirit who indwells me as a believer will lead to demonic domination. Again, that's a, that's a strong, strong statement, but it's very important to make that statement. We're going to see uh, where he, he goes from there. Riken continues by saying, we're safe from Satan only when the Holy Spirit indwells us. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no one strong enough to bar the door against Satan. Now, <clears throat> this brings up another uh, sort of balancing gray zone. Uh, when I become a Christian, uh, that does not mean the battle is over. In point of fact, that means the battle has just begun. Satan has no, no desire. He, it doesn't mess with me as long as I'm one of his. He doesn't need to. He's already got me. But when God comes in and, and regenerates me, gives me a new heart, 
takes my heart of stone out, puts in a heart of flesh, gives me the Holy Spirit, then the fight begins. And this fight, Satan does not go down easily and he will continue uh, this, this combat. Uh, so again, we either believe in all of Jesus or you'll give yourself over all to Satan. That's, that's where it ends all the time. And if you're like me, you realize that sinful proclivities tend to indeed get worse. Uh, they don't, it would be wonderful. And, and uh, we always say to ourselves, I will, will take myself as an example. Uh, I always say with myself when I'm trying to battle something, I think I can just dabble in it. Uh, I think I'll be okay if I don't fall off the planet. And, and, but eventually I'm down there when I hoped to dabble. There's, there's no dabbling with Satan. It's all Jesus, uh, and that's where it needs to go. The authority of Jesus is key. D.A. Carson, when he's writing about this passage, he says this, the authority of Jesus is a great comfort to the eyes of faith and a great terror to the merely religious uh, there are a lot of religious people <clears throat> and the authority of Jesus is something that they will usually fight. They will combat. There, there are a lot of people these days and there always have been. It's nothing new to our generation. Uh, when, you, when you tell them about scripture or they read scripture or passages of the Bible, they don't like it because Jesus, uh, Jesus says this. He says, it's all me. You either come to me all totally Everything about you comes to me or you're with Satan. And people think, no, I can be neutral. We're going to get uh, into that a little bit uh, deeper in a minute. There is no such thing as neutrality. Um, so Carson talks about the authority of, of Jesus being a great comfort to the eyes of faith. Uh, that, what that tells me is that when I am indeed become aware of the fact that I have fallen off again into sinfulness, and uh, Satan is, is there pounding on my heart, pounding on my head, saying, you, look at there, you've done it again. You're, how do you, what makes you think you were ever a Christian in the first place? Uh, to have done this over and over and over, and here you are again. When I'm in those, those places, I come back to the authority of Jesus. And I say, as we mentioned last week, uh, you're right, Satan. There's a lot of what you say this, this is true about me. I can't do it. I have fallen again. I am a sinful person but I'm also a person who is saved by Jesus Christ. He is my savior and he cannot be defeated by you. Uh, that's what Carson is getting at here. He goes, uh, he references uh, Matthew chapter eight about the centurion. I love this man. You, we've seen this in Luke also. You remember this story. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus says to the centurion, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes and to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That's the kind of, of uh, authority that we need to understand uh, is working with us when we're, when we're caught in these struggles. Uh, 
This is certainly true as well in, in, in one sense. Uh, in perhaps in deeper ways currently, there's a, there's a pretty clear indication, I think, that the West, which was uh, when, when Paul has that dream, <laughs> when God sends Paul the dream, Paul is about to go East and God says, I don't want you going East, I want you going West that sent the gospel toward Greece rather than toward Asia and from Greece into Rome and into uh, what we call Western Europe, which then went across the ocean to the United States. Uh, we, we should be grateful for all of that. But today it's pretty obvious that the West, which has had this book, this scripture, and has oriented so many cultures and countries uh, based upon it, uh, is failing because we're leaving this book. We're leaving this word and we're leaving God. And when you leave God, it's not surprising that we begin to, to look more and more satanic. But the good news is this word hasn't gone anywhere. It remains with us and it means today what it did then. Uh, so how do we respond uh, to Jesus and this authority? Jesus is going to continue uh, to unpack things here. Next two verses, verses 27 and 28. On the surface, you read it and you think, well, this is very positive. Uh, but in point of fact, this is, uh, this is a person who is going to miss the mark in a different way. Verses 27 and 28. As Jesus, he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, now listen carefully to these words, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. What this woman is saying is, is blessed Mary. Uh, but he, Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Uh, this, of course, is a, a major uh, presentation of, of Roman Catholicism and in, in the, the uh, worship of Mary. Uh, and by the way, that was a fairly late uh, aspect to Catholicism. I think it was in the 1850s or so that, that Catholicism officially took that on as, as a pattern. But at any rate, this woman in the crowd uh, has, has heard Jesus speak these words and she's aiming uh, toward the person of Mary and Jesus comes back and says, the person of Mary has no import whatsoever. She's a good example but it's not her body that needs to be worshiped. The woman has said, blessed is the womb, blessed are the breasts from which you nourish. It's rather her trust in Christ and obedience to his word. Mary's most important relationship to Jesus was as a sinner to her savior. And you know how, how Mary goes. Uh, Mary has such a unique and poignant role and difficult role to play uh, in the story of, of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Uh, and she plays it well. And at the end of um, when, when the crucifixion and all of that is, is taking place, uh, Mary is, is, um, is there and, and uh, her son is with her as her savior. And uh, so I have no trouble whatsoever acknowledging Mary as a very faithful uh, sinner who came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but the point is, it's not Mary 
Mary was nothing unique. Mary was not different from anybody else except that she had a very, very different role to play, a unique role uh, to play. So uh, Jesus is, is correcting and he corrects by saying, go back to the word. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's where Jesus comes back again and again. And through all of this, we learn some more important insights into sinfulness. The heart of sin does not lie with the acts of moral degradation and rebelliousness. Sin, in other words, is not so much the things I do or fail to do when I should be doing them. The heart of sin, rather, is an attitude of life that is foundationally self-centered. The problem with most sin is, uh, is whatever, whatever inclinations, whatever, uh, whatever absences, when I, when I know I'm, I should go do something and I refuse to do it, every single time all of the events of sin are, are self-centered in nature. And the problem with that is, the problem and the solution is that this word is outside of us. The solution is because it is outside. The problem, however, is if I stay in myself, I don't get to it. Everything keeps imploding. And that, uh, that will lead to terrible, uh, terrible problems. The polarities of sin, I think this was a D.A. Carson uh, perspective on this, is not Hitler versus Mother Teresa. The polarities of sin are the centurion that we just read about with faith versus the religious people who lack faith. Being religious, being moral, being, being uh, works-oriented, full of effort, full of uh, attempts to improve myself, that's great, but that doesn't, uh, it, it's, it's faith again that brings me to my Savior. The problem, therefore, self-focused person becomes a black hole. Nothing ever comes out of me. The solution is God speaking to us in Christ from without through his word. So again, the word is every, every part of this uh, section of Luke, uh, Jesus is getting back to remember the word. Now, to us, it's this book. Uh, he's speaking physically to these disciples and to these people uh, who are hearing him. Uh, then we come to a fascinating uh, teaching after this called the sign of Jonah. This will be verses 29 to 32. I want to begin with just the first two verses, 29 and 30. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. A lot of ink. Uh, has been spilled over the last 2,000 years, started with Jerome and Augustine long, long time ago about what is the sign of Jonah? Uh, a lot of, of uh, ideas floating around. Uh, this particular passage uh, that Luke presents here is presented also in Matthew. It is not in Mark. It is not in John. Uh, but Matthew also alludes to the sign of Jonah. If you turn to Matthew 12, I want to turn there because Matthew adds something. He, he comes a little bit different. He doesn't add it. He's, he has a different uh, take on it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. 
says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now here is, here is the approach Luke or Matthew takes, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Matthew, in other words, is alluding to the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. Luke does not allude to the resurrection. Luke does not allude to the cross. If we go back here uh, to Luke, Luke in verse 30 says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. That's a different aspect of this story of, of Jonah. A fascinating, fascinating little book. Uh, unfortunately, as, as young children, uh, we all fall in love with the fish or the whale or the whatever it was. Uh, that, that's, uh, frankly, that's kind of a sidebar in the book of Jonah. It is a fascinating little uh, book for a number of reasons. Uh, but the point is, Jesus says, I'm not going to give a sign because a sign isn't going to convince anyone. If you go forward to Luke chapter 16, a familiar, perhaps, verse, Luke 16, 31, says, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Uh, the Pharisees are constantly after Jesus saying, okay, uh, show us something, give us a real whammy. Well, he, he's already raised people from the dead. I mean, what, how many signs do these people want? And of course, what Jesus is saying is they don't really want a sign. There is no sign that would convince any of these people. They will never uh, come to it. Why? Because faith, biblical faith is supernatural. <coughs> It doesn't come from, from weighing facts or comparing this with that. I didn't go down this rabbit trail last week. I will spend about one minute on it. This has a lot to do with apologetics. Apologetics is simply, it doesn't mean apologizing for anything. Apologetics has come to be a phrase, a word that's used to, to cover the defense of the faith. When I'm a, a Christian and I go out and I'm speaking with an unbeliever, it could be around the Thanksgiving dinner, it could be somebody in my family, it could be somebody out on the street, as this church is, is so wonderful uh, in going out on the streets and speaking to total strangers. Uh, the point of it is the best system of apologetics, the most biblical system of apologetics is, is called presuppositional. <clears throat> You don't need to remember that word. In fact, the people that, that uh, created that word are now trying to call it covenantal. Uh, it's a little more, a little more uh, acceptable, I think, if you call it covenantal. All it means is, is be biblical in your defense. Don't go to an unbeliever and say, let's go find a neutral ground someplace and argue this out. And if my argument is stronger than your argument, then you become a believer. It doesn't work that way. If I could convince, if this book doesn't convince people, what in the world will convince them? We don't need to be uh, trying to uh, be experts in argumentation. Now, so-called classical apologetics is exactly that. 
let's come down off the mountain of the word, get down on their level, get to a neutral, so-called neutral playing field, and let's discuss things, and they will clearly come to a conclusion that it has to be uh, the truth of scripture. Uh, I'm not saying that I, I don't want to draw lines in the sand about any of this. I don't want to get into uh, uh, this, that, or, this, uh, or uh, throw rocks at people who want to argue. Uh, there will be use of evidence, but in, uh, in biblical use, that's secondary. The best example of it in the book of Acts, when Paul goes to Athens, what does he do? He looks around and he sees all of these uh, idols, these uh, things created uh, to various idols among the Athenians, even one to an unknown God. And Paul uses that. He said, look at that. Look, you've got, you must believe in something. You got all these idols. He's not arguing with them. He's simply identifying with them so he can then tell them the gospel. Uh, you've, it's the, it's the simple gospel that is used by the Holy Spirit to change hearts. That is my mandate from God. Present the gospel. My mandate is not to go to seminaries or go to universities or get PhDs or whatever so that I can out-argue somebody. Out-arguing is trying to give them a bigger sign than they've got. That's not what is going on here. And that's exactly uh, what Jesus is talking about with this sign of Jonah. I'm not going to give him a sign because no matter how well I argue, no matter how dramatically I indicate a sign to them, it has nothing to do with belief until God has come into my heart and removed it and replaced it with a heart of, of flesh and the Holy Spirit's presence. I am not a believer and I'm not going to be a believer. Now, it does no harm at all to go over and over and over again. The scriptures are absolutely full, and we, we probably all know people uh, that we've talked to for years and years. We've taken them to church. They've heard sermons. We're sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, that's that sermon. That, I know that's going to work. And you get out at lunch after Sunday church, and they say, I didn't get anything out of that. Did you, do you know what he was talking about? I'm going, oh. There are all kinds of stories. And then a year later, they'll come in and hear a sermon that's frankly a lot worse than the one that you took them to. And they'll say, ah, oh, did you hear that? Truth, divine. And they, it is up to the Lord. Our job is to faithfully present the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, whenever and however we can by loving people with it, not beating them with the gospel, loving them with the gospel, listening to their story listening and, and waiting and presenting the gospel to them. Uh, so what is the sign of Jonah? Well, we've seen it presented two different ways. I think the best way to, is to combine both the Matthew uh, aspect and the Luke aspect. Matthew is saying it's going to be the resurrection. It's going to be a cross, a death for three days, and a resurrection. Uh, Luke is saying it's, it's going back and converting the Ninevites. Now, both of those things are... Uh, true together. Uh, repent and believe, resting in Jesus's full accomplishment by his finished work on the cross. That's one sentence that would combine both of them. Uh, Jonah goes to the Ninevites and says, repent and believe. Uh, he doesn't know about the cross. The people in Nineveh don't know about the cross, nor, by the way, do they know about the whale, uh, which is why you don't immediately run to the fish every time you have a question on Jonah. Um, Sinclair Ferguson calls this the, quote, death-producing life principle. Ferguson gets that out of John chapter 12, 
it's a it's a wonderful uh, reiteration, really, of the sign of Jonah and what uh, we're talking about here. John chapter twelve, verse twenty four. When the disciples are still uh, confused about everything. <clears throat> Jesus says, is truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Uh, that's the essence of the Christian faith. It's, it's uh, what Jesus is, is uh, using as an illustration to help them understand what he is going to do in about 24 hours from the time he makes that statement. Uh, dying to self for the sake of others getting rid of pride, anger, self-pity, arrogance, putting on love, compassion, service. In verses 31 and 32, uh, Luke completes this issue of the sign of Jonah. He goes on to say, the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh, verse 32, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So you see what how Luke is using uh, this uh, wonderful uh, little story of, of Jonah. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, as, as usual, Tim Keller has an outstanding uh, little book on the, on the book of Jonah that he calls the prodigal prophet. The reason he says that is because uh, when you look in the book of Jonah, there, there, are two, uh, there are two parallel stories that are being told there. Uh, there's first Jonah leaving. You remember God comes to Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to those people we hate. Those Assyrians, those Ninevites, those people who have destroyed Israel. I want you to go to them and take the gospel to them. And Jonah says, huh. Not me. Boom, gets on a boat and goes as far, he goes to Tarshish, which in that time was as literally as far away as he could possibly have gone from Nineveh. He says, I'm not going to those people. Suppose today somebody said, okay, I want you to go to the Democratic Convention and I want you to, to, to bring Hillary and, and Joe and uh, uh, you know the cast of characters. And I want you to present the gospel to them. <laughs> I hope we would be willing to do such a thing. But uh, at any rate, uh, Jonah wants a God of his own making. Jonah wants to go to his people. He's more than happy to take the gospel to his folks, but he's not going to have anything to do with the folks he doesn't like. So he runs from God. And you know the story. He's thrown off the boat and, and the whale saves him and all of this. That's the first half of Jonah. Think about the prodigal son. Parable. The prodigal son runs away from the father. The second half of Jonah is when he comes back. And then you've got the plant that God grows up in. But then he gets mad at Jonah gets mad at the plant because God causes the plant to wither. But he finally goes to the Ninevites. And the ending of Jonah is exactly like the parable of the prodigal son. There's a question that is goes completely unanswered. The elder brother refuses to come in because of his pride. He doesn't think God ought to save a guy like his brother. His brother was a notorious sinful person, so sinful that he left the house. He left the farm. He left his father in a lurch and went off 
in profligate living of some sort or another. And his, his brother, meanwhile, stayed at home and minded his P's and Q's in total moralism and says, I deserve the gospel, not my brother, and I'm not coming into your feast. I'm not celebrating that. It's exactly what the book of Jonah is all about. Has a lot to do with nationalism. C.S. Lewis goes into really fascinating things about nationalism and patriotism from the book of Jonah, because Jonah is fine if God wants to save the Israelites, but he's not going to have anything to do with the Ninevites. It's a fascinating, fascinating little book. And here in Luke, Luke is using it. So when the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit God, frankly, not my counterfeit God, not your counterfeit God, what are, what are the places in your life that you're absolutely unyielding on? You go down this road, but I'm not going down that one. I, I, those people were bad. Those people are mean. I'm not going to go there. I don't want God going there. They don't deserve to be saved. What are those kinds of events, people, uh, sins, places, that, that uh, so forth? Uh, when the real God shows up, not Jonah's counterfeit, Jonah's thrown into fury and despair. He can't reconcile the mercy of God with the justice of God. That is Jonah's problem. I have no trouble saying I struggle with it. And my guess would be perhaps uh, some others here do as well, uh, a.k.a. all of us. Um, let me read you one verse from the book of Acts, or excuse me, from the book of Romans. Familiar passage, Romans chapter 3. You know how Romans, Romans begins with um, two and a half chapters that just beat you down until you are below the level of the ground, until it finally says, there is no one righteous, no, not one single person. So don't look in the mirror and think of yourself in any other way. And then at the end of chapter three, I'm only gonna to go to 26 here. Uh, 20, verse 23 of Romans three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And when you get to 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a very deep, critically important topic that we don't have time to get into right now. Uh, but I will just, uh, I want to read two more passages that illustrate what Jesus has just told us here. Very important perspectives that Paul picks up on. Verse from the book of 2 Corinthians, familiar passage in chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And then one other very, very insightful passage from the book of Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, verses seven to 11. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is what Jonah needed to hear. That is what we need to hear. That is what Jesus is telling uh, these people who are listening here in Luke chapter 11. And then finally, there's a, a more, an, an easier conclusion to what we're looking at now. Verses 33 to 36 in Luke 11. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, in other words, when you allow yourself to go down roads that you know you shouldn't be going down, uh, looking at them, then your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Uh, there's a story <clears throat> I, I, I'm sure I could find it, but I don't, I, I remember this story. I just, it was probably from Edmund Burke. Y'all read the Edmund Burke's uh, insights on the French Revolution uh, sometime. But uh, there was a story that Burke used to tell about Christians who were in prison uh, during the French Revolution in France. And one particular group that he mentions uh, was in this, this big dungeon with a very, very tall ceiling that had a little crack in it. The only time light came into that crack was when the sun was making its traverse and from, from a few degrees, the light would be coming in and then it would pass and the cell would grow dark again. And during those few uh, minutes, this group of Christians that had a Bible among them created some way to hoist a person up to that ceiling so that when that light came, that person had the maximum number of, of minutes to read. And then he would come back down when it came dark and they'd say, what did you find in the word? That is, is what uh, this Jesus is telling. Here's a, a concluding verse from Colossians verse three, or chapter three, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Donald Gray Barnhouse closed, uh, when he was covering this, he closed with an interesting uh, back, back to the board again. He said, the day of his patience shall come to an end. He shall lay aside his robes of mediation and gird himself with the sword of omnipotent justice. Today is still the day of mercy and grace. The door of salvation still stands wide. Come unto him while it is day, while the light still shows on the word and the word in the heart of the believer. Let's close in prayer. Father, these are stark, stark truths. 
that take no prisoners. Uh, you don't have a, a group of people called the elect and the non-elect, the saved and the unsaved, and then the neutral group that you deal with. We come to Jesus or we're left in the dark with Satan. Father, uh, we're all sinful people. We know that. Help us to be people who repent of our sin and try to do better, but know at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with us. Everything, all the punishment, all the death that we deserved was placed on the shoulders of your son, Jesus Christ. When he was nailed to that tree, he nailed my sin and every believer's sin forever. My past sins, my present sins, and my future sins forever nailed and left. And he died for me. He paid the price for me. Father, help me to realize when he resurrected, he was going to resurrect me too. There'll never be a moment that the believer is outside of the love of Christ and the presence of Christ. Even when we die, we are immediately transferred into his presence. Father, help us to know that. Help us to be serious dealing with our sin, but help us to know faith in your word, faith in Jesus, faith through the power of your Holy Spirit saves me and I can take that message anywhere in the world without fear or trembling at all. Father, what a gospel. We thank you for the light. Help us to seek it and bathe in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.